Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. It's been 21 years. Wow. I was diagnosed with stage four cancer all over my body. I, I'm a huge believer in reframing, and people don't really understand fully the power of that thing. This is our life. We can spend it ruminating. We can spend it worrying about things that which we have no control, and it's the most compelling and a natural thing to do, but it ruins our life. It takes away the enjoyment and the satisfaction. I'm such a firm believer in if you're not happy, move. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 52 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Gil Winch. Before we begin, I wanted to thank all the supporters of the show who have helped it pass 7,000 downloads. For any new listeners, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and do subscribe, like, and tell your friends if you enjoy the content. Now back to the show. Gil has served for over 30 years as an organizational consultant for many large companies and is an in-demand keynote speaker. His work creating a 100% underdog company composed mainly of people with disabilities has received international attention and led to an invitation to speak at conferences alongside Bill Clinton and other influential leaders. Winch is the founder of Call Yahol an outsourcing call center that is a proving ground and showcase for his hiring and workforce building model. He is the author of Winning with Underdogs, which is a great read and also has a very interesting TED talk. Welcome, Gil. Hi, and thank you for having me on. So, Gil, I'm a big fan of the arts. Is there a performer, song, book or film which you'd like to share with our listeners? When it comes to the arts, I'm like 16-year-old at the best. <laughs> so I really enjoyed Avatar. But that's that's pretty much as deep as I go. I think Hosier is a wonderful performer and artist and writes wonderful songs. But that's pretty much that's pretty much um the best I can do. It's not that, one of my uh, That that that's cool, Gil. I mean, look ultimately I think this is what makes the world we're all different um and as you say in your book you know we all have different tastes we're from different cultures you know different languages and you know if everybody was the same how boring that would be but one interesting thing for people for anybody who's watching this on YouTube you might be uh, to have a double take when you see Gil because he looks very familiar to somebody else and that's your twin brother Guy Winch. I'm a big fan of Guy's work and obviously, you know, great to see you here as well. But going back to the start of your career, you studied psychology at university. So what was the motivation behind that, Gil? From a very, very young age, I was really occupied with what I can master in life and what I cannot. And on a really good day, I'm 5'8". <laughs> um, so I wasn't going to be the most physically... Uh, able person around. I'm I'm okay smarts wise, but there's always someone smarter than you. But I think I figured out really in a really, really, really young age that there's one thing I can have complete control over, and that's my mind. I can decide what I want to think, how I would like to feel, and what kind of person I'd like to be. And I spent an awful lot of my youth looking to see what kind of actually behaviors I like and I would like to adopt because when I see it, that's the kind of behavior I like. And I was always very busy with what kind of person I, I want to be and how I can mold myself into that kind of person. And it was when it was time to, to register to university, there were two things that pushed me towards psychology. This, what I just talked about, was one. The other one was looking through everything else there was to be offered, I couldn't find one thing that interested me, <laughs> maybe other than archaeology, 
but then I don't really have the patience to, to, for the digs themselves. Just, just tell me what you found and show it to me. Psychology really, really interested me. What makes people tick? What makes people crazy, sane? What makes that person popular? What makes that person not? That was really always so fascinating to me. And, and I jumped on the opportunity to study and I was amazingly happy with the studies. I was I was really, really engaged. I found it really interesting. And whenever we had recommended reading, I would go and read it. I really, really found it. And I still do. I find psychology extremely interesting. I just love that answer, Gil, because I think you know, the, the whole idea of you taking agency and looking at your life and looking at your skills and talents and being honest with yourself as well and saying, how best can I take these talents, take these skills and really mold them into something uh, which is going to create great value? And I think, you know, say with our you know lives and careers, I think sometimes we're led by uh, our feelings and then emotions and I, and I think in some senses that's not too bad but also I think you have to be honest with yourself you need a dash that. of realism right there correct exactly exactly and in terms of your career once you had gone to university and graduated and obviously done your doctorate which obviously must have taken a long time and a lot of hard work how did your career evolve was there a particular strategy that you applied I didn't really want to work for anybody because I really thought that I need to figure things out on my own. And if someone tells me what's correct or not, that will influence my own ideas regarding what's correct or not. So I really wanted to, to work for myself. And I studied clinical psychology. And I did that for about a year. And I always say, with the encouragement of my patients, I realized <laughs> that I don't think that's the ideal choice for me. Guy is maybe the best clinical psychologist really I've met, I've heard of. I think he's he's amazing, my, my twin brother. I couldn't see myself sitting still, a bit of ADD here, sitting still so many hours. And back in, in the day, psychology was mainly for people who are unhappy, depressed, miserable. There wasn't much positive psychology going along. And, and I didn't want to find myself comforting and trying to help depressed people all day. It might get me depressed, I thought. And I I wanted to do something much more proactive. And I realized that I'm, I love psychology, but I can't be treating people, even though it fascinates me at some point. And certain people, their treatment did fascinate me, but I want to be much more proactive. So I decided I, I want to do a PhD in, in organizational psychology. My master's was in clinical psychology, and but I, my PhD was in organizational psychology. Yeah. And I felt that that's much more up my alley because I can influence people. I can influence organizations. And from the beginning, I knew I also wanted to influence values. And I can get all that as an organizational psychologist. And I figured I know how to read. I know enough psychology to read and learn by myself enough people around to ask if I get stuck somewhere. And I just set out. No, I just love that story. And and, and I love the way that your patience almost helped you. Come no, no, they encouraged you. Encouraged. Because yeah. no, a funny story, my, my mother is a doctor, Gil, and she, she's an anesthetist now. But partway through her sort of training, she was thinking about different routes. And she did, I think, psychiatry for a few months. And I think she also, well, maybe not the patients, but I think she realized that that wasn't the career for her. So I think yeah. it's interesting how you need to look at the reality of the situation, take feedback, and then you know, go back. And, and now, obviously, she's had a fantastic career consultant. But it, it's funny. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. Because how- she started out listening to people and she ended up putting them to sleep sort of thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. What I love about your story is, uh, and it's so inspiring, I think you could almost make it into a film, is how you started um, CY in, in 2008. It, you know, it's such an amazing story. And and also, I love how supporting your wife was. Um, you know, shout out to her. I'm just amazed that you're still married. How did you put up with this trauma, Gil? I got married when I was uh... 33. And that was quite a few years ago. I was like the last one by by far to get married because I knew that I will only marry someone I want to grow old with. Because I grew up as a twin and my brother and I always had the most, and we still do, the most wonderful relationship, I knew what a good dyad looks like. And I wasn't willing to compromise in any kind of way. I needed to find the person who's perfect 
for me, and I absolutely killed it. I absolutely found the most perfect person for me. And we get along so wonderfully, I think, because in certain things, really important things, we are totally similar, like beliefs and values and, and how you should live your life. But in certain things, we are opposite. So each one can lean on the other. I think that's, that, that was the most maybe important thing I ever actually did in, in, in my life. And I think um, anybody who reads the book will know what you're talking about when, when there was a lot of trust needed. I'll give I, I think she gave spoiler. you a bit too much trust. <laughs> no, it worked out really well. But this, <laughs> the little spoiler is that um, being diagnosed with a terminal illness, yeah. I decided to invest all our savings <laughs> in a company that's never been done before when every expert thought it was a horrific idea. But I was right. And and my wife knew me well enough to know that if I'm really if I really believe in something, then I should be I should be trusted and supported. We really have an amazing marriage. We're, we're a great team and we support each other like a team. Oh, fantastic. And and this is just uh, a week before Valentine's. This is a, yeah, such a nice story. Um, and hopefully your wife will be happy with you. Well, even happier than she normally is. Making her happy is always a good thing. Actually, can you just maybe tell us a little bit about the company? I'll tell the story and then I'll tell about the company. Yeah. I met someone, it was 21 years ago. He's a paraplegic and he mentioned to me, uh, this was like maybe a few weeks after I was diagnosed, that people with disabilities are globally the most unemployed population out there and people with severe disabilities are especially unemployed. And when he said it to me, I said, oh, and it actually made sense. Severely disabled, unemployed makes sense. But when I went home and I looked at who comprises these disabled people and severely disabled people, I realized within a short while two things. A, that there doesn't seem to be any good reason for them to be unemployed because we're not doing the industrial revolution anymore. They don't have to go and work in mines. I, I discovered that what most unemployed, especially people with disabilities, but unemployed people do at home all day, they do screens and phones which is what most people do at work all day. So what reason is there for them to be so chronically, 60 to 70% unemployment just if you're disabled and if you're severely disabled, like blind or in a wheelchair or emotionally disabled, 90 maybe, but globally. All, and and it's, it's horrific for the economies. It's, it's horrific for the families, community. It's horrific for everyone. And so the first thing I realized was it doesn't seem to me to have anything to actually do with disabilities. And if it doesn't, maybe it's solvable. And the second thing that occurred to me was that I truly believe that communities are measured by how they strengthen their weakest link, not how they pamper the strongest links. And we have taken the weakest amongst us, at least medically, and we have imposed upon them two additional horrific hardships. We have made them the poorest of the poor because unless you're Swiss, you'll be earning way below minimum wage with the pensions. And then we've totally created social isolation. Everybody leaves the house to go somewhere and nobody wants them and they don't leave the, go the house to go anywhere. And it doesn't really matter what kind of disability makes them stay at home. Everybody gets a trauma for being so unwanted and so rejected and I've always had a real big soft spot for underdogs. Having been diagnosed with a terminal illness, I need like a nice long-term project to sink my teeth into, sort of as a way of going, well, this is what I think about being diagnosed as terminal. Because I really thought right from the beginning that in, in a modern day and age of medicine, you shouldn't say that to anyone because everyday new stuff is coming out. So. I'm going to stick around and I need a nice long project to work with. It would make me happy. And I thought that the amount of human suffering that could be alleviated if I managed to do anything with this, this is 1 billion people worldwide. Just imagine if I managed to address it in any kind of way, how much good that, that would bring into the world. And I'm, I was born to a religious family, but I, I have no religious beliefs. I really believe we should be leaving the room cleaner than it was when we got into it. I thought that would be like an amazing sort of tidying up to do. And I love that the whole idea of, I think it's very much about these 
sort of cognitive biases, these perceptions about people, which unfortunately, you know, none of us are blameless in having, you know, because of our background or the, uh, the, the maybe the company we keep, we have certain slants on the way we look at the world. And unfortunately, I think maybe for this um, group, of, group of people, that there is this perception that maybe they're not capable, they can't perform. But clearly, as you're saying, and I, and I just love the way it's almost reframing the problem and saying, look, if they're at home watching screens, listening to telephones, uh, answering telephones, then they can do the job. There is no uh, problem about it. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know why they're out of work. I didn't know what the real reason is, and I didn't know that nobody had done what we've done. We've interviewed over fifteen thousand people with disabilities during those uh, during these years, and we have a very, very robust idea of what the real reasons they're out of work. And after I. I knew that after 100 people, and I I took a few years to put together a model of how I can cater to every one of the reasons I've heard that people are out of work. And I thought that if I build a for-profit company, so nobody will have an excuse, well, yeah. you're a foundation. No, a for-profit company. We don't presume or aspire to maximum profit. Staffed and managed at the beginning for the first few years only with severely disabled people who hadn't worked before, and we can somehow survive in the free market and prove regular productivity because everybody's cynical had to be able to prove it. And that's why we became a call center. Every metric is measured in call centers. There are always other teams doing the same work. I can prove that we're as good as, if not better, and we're often better. I thought that would be the most wonderful vehicle to change perceptions and ideas worldwide. And I thought if it, if it works where I'm at, it'll work anywhere. And that's what I set out with. It took me five years to come up with the model and everything. And you'll see that the Terminal things started to, yeah. to, to lose steam. But I really believe, and I still do, that we need to change our world so everybody who's out of the, the workforce will have an opportunity to join it and join it for regular salaries and regular productivity. But, and last sentence here, not everybody can do anything. Yeah. People with disabilities, they don't have as many options as other people. So, just for instance, you have quite a few, most deaf people in the world, or even people with hearing impairments, severe hearing impairment, they're out of a job. You can't function on the phone. You can't, nearly every large company has chat teams, which is a good entry position. If you would just save a few of those for people with hearing disabilities, they wouldn't be so much out of a job like they are nowadays. That You can find a job or jobs, many jobs for many people who can't do everything, but they can do many things. We just need to keep some of those jobs for them and and provide them with with, with the tools they need in order to to succeed. And it, it would it would be such a wonderful thing worldwide if we did that. And 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 I I started the company in order to achieve that goal. And and, and I love this whole idea of is for profit. The whole idea of analyzing metrics, getting data. Um, I mean, say with this podcast, if nobody's listening, then clearly I haven't got good guests or I'm a, a terrible host and I need to think about it uh, differently. And I think it's always important to get data and, and not be shy about data because sometimes bad news is good news because it actually gives you feedback. And I just love the way that you get these metrics. Clearly you're doing well, you're making money. I really believe in social businesses. And I think England, actually, UK is is maybe the, the largest, the country with the most social businesses. If I, I remember uh-huh. I something okay. like 200,000 maybe. Oh social businesses. And and if you walk along any main street in, in, in many large city in the UK, you'll find at least two or three social businesses, stores for, mm-hmm. for this or that communities. And yeah, and I really believe in social businesses. I don't believe in maximum profit. Uh, so for instance, in our business, nobody can earn more than five times anybody else. And mm-hmm. I got to say that nobody's up to four. <laughs> so if management wants to work, earn more, let's make everybody earn more. And then yeah. you can earn more. Yeah. Or we can earn more. I think that's the correct, correct way to go about things. And and nowadays you have companies where people are hungry. Employees are going home hungry, but the CEO is earning three hundred times what. And I I don't get it. I I don't I don't understand it even. Someone can get millions of dollars or pounds as a bonus, while the people who helped him make that bonus are so badly off and so poor there's got to be a bit more justice have other countries tried to adopt it Gil, or how, how's yeah, that gone? that's that's a very important question so so for the first 10 years 
what we're doing is wonderful. It's very difficult. Yeah, of course. We're taking on people with, with terminal illnesses because I really couldn't feel comfortable saying, no, you have a terminal illness, yeah. even though most of the company have no idea what my, my physical uh, state is. Or We take on people knowing that they don't have a lot of time, they're going to die on us, but they want to work yeah. before, before their time runs out. We take them on. And we take on people who are dealing with horrific, horrific, horrific life stories. You have, you, have, you know, people don't know that they're, in every country you have people born disabled and and left outside the hospital and they grow up never being loved and i i don't think most of us know what that feels like to be to grow up and you're everybody's work but nobody actually loves you as a person you don't stay in each foster home or whatever long enough and then they get to the age in their 20s they have no one in the world and they have no work and then they find us and we become everything. We become the family. We become, we become the source of everything in, in in the company. And you have people like that in every country. And and some of them have have really bad disabilities. But yeah. inside, they're people just like you and I. But yeah, they were just born in horrific circumstances. And they're praying for someone to lend them a hand. I have enough hands to lend. I feel I always did. And I think when you do that, two things happen. I think giving is more addictive. Because it gives you such a wonderful feeling. I mean, anybody listening, imagine you, you're going home, mm. someone's had an accident on the sidewalk, and you, you can actually save their life. You do something and you actually save their life. And they know it, and you know it, and the people around you know it. Now, you leave them and then you go home. What, how, you, how do you feel? Yeah. And I think you'll feel that that was like one of the most amazing days in your life because you've done something so profound. And then in the next day at work, so what's going to be exciting now? I mean, after you've done that. So I think giving is is immensely addictive, but it creates so much happiness. First of all, because it does. But second of all, because the proportions you have when you are among so many people who've had such a tough deal, and, and, and it always puts things into great proportions. So I really, really think that people, when you have a chance to do something for someone you don't you don't know you've never met, but you can actually transform their lives. It's such a powerful thing to actually take the time and effort to do that. Doesn't happen often in life when they have the opportunity. Pounce on it when you do. That's what you're. Those are the stories you'll be telling your grandchildren. Not about a bonus you got some time at work. No, no, and I love that story, and especially I think it can apply to you know all of us. The whole idea of you know, looking at our lives, looking at the reality, reframing it. And I think we're always sometimes looking at what we don't have, but actually we're not happy with what we do have. And actually there are very small things. Um, you know, for those of us who like films, not just Avatar, you can watch a movie <laughs> or listen to some music or, and, and those are very low cost, you know, on your TV, on the radio, and they're very low cost things, but it gives you so much joy or going for a walk. And I think you know, if you can actually look at, the positive rather than the negative. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, as a psychologist, I don't know if you have the answer, know the answer to this, but presumably if we're in a more positive state of mind, then does that affect our sort of bodies or our physical? If you are feeling happier, life does seem easier. Um, I, I believe that with every fiber of my being, I knew that in order to beat an illness that's considered terminal, it still yeah. is, and everybody in the waiting room 21 years ago wasn't there 20 years ago, just me. And everyone there 20 years ago wasn't there 19 years ago, just me. Because one of the most difficult things when you're diagnosed with anything bad is that you feel you lose control. Now the doctors have it. They're telling you, will you live? Will you not live? How long you'll live? And I said, no, 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 no. I went with that for a few weeks and then they said, no, it's not for me. I want to I wanna determine my own destiny. And I thought that there are two things I can do which are totally in my control. And I believe they can have a huge impact on any illness. And one was, I thought, if I bring my physical condition to the strongest I can. And the second one was, if I bring my mind, and I was always, I was born optimistic, but if, if I bring myself to be really, really happy and content and surrounded by love, I thought that... Illnesses have a very tough time growing in that environment. And that's something that I can do. And 
It's been 21 years. Wow. I was diagnosed with stage four cancer all over my body. For 12 years, I had no treatments whatsoever because I know how to read research. And all the research said, nothing prolongs life. It'll just reduce suffering. And I wasn't suffering. So there's no point in having any kind of treatments. And then after, I just took care of how I feel and my emotions. And I really, really believe that this is what carried the day. And after 11 years, either my cancer transformed or I developed another kind of cancer. And then I did have treatments for a year. Wow. But I was throughout, I was busy with the minute I finished what I'm going to be doing. I didn't, have, I didn't entertain for more than one second. What if the treatments don't work or it comes back or it gets worse or something happens? And when I say that, if there's anybody listening who is ill, so, yeah, but how can you do that? How can you not entertain a thought when you can actually feel lumps? Of course, yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you the secret. I don't know if it's much of a secret, but it really works for me. I discovered it when my daughter, when she was three, and she thought maybe there might be a witch in the closet. <laughs> and I, I used to you know, show her that there isn't, but she said, yeah, but they went away because you opened the door. The minute you close it, they'll be there. So I couldn't beat the witch that way. And, and then I thought, okay, so all our minds can entertain usually one thought at a time. So if we're having a bad one, the best way to get rid of it is to force a good one in it. I, Whenever I had any kind of troubling thought or fear about my medical situation, I would spend every ounce of emotional energy I have thinking about something pleasant. And if that didn't work for me, I would do math in my head. It's very difficult to do math when you're troubled. It doesn't work well. But I would do everything to get the thought out of my head. And I actually trained myself to not entertain those kinds of thoughts, which is a great way to go. And you can actually train yourself. You need to put in effort. It's like lifting weights. There's sweat and effort involved, but you get better as you go along. And neither myself or my wife or my brother, after a short period of time, were concerned with my health anymore because we'd learned to trust it and there's no point being concerned with it. And I kept on saying to my wife, what happens if we sit on a bench when we were 100 and I spent my whole life being afraid? How stupid would we feel? So I'm going to presume that we'll be sitting on a bench when we were 100 and let's take it from there. And everything might be a little a little roadblock in the way, but that's it. That's where we're going to get. And I think that's such an important thing to do to maintain quality of life if you're if you're diagnosed or you're sick. And also, I think this whole idea of, of fear, because I think that stops so many of us doing things. You know, fear of looking stupid, fear of people rejecting us. In your situation, you face the darkest situation. So really. Everything else is, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a lot easier by reframing things. I'm a huge believer in reframing, and people don't really understand fully the power of that thing. I've had so many so many instances where things seem totally bleak and dark. So in my mind, the reframing was, you know those movies when the gate's coming down and the hero's going to manage to slide <laughs> just at the last second? Yeah, exactly. I'm sliding. Yeah. Yeah. But it didn't matter how far the gate was coming down. I knew I could unslide at the end. And I held on to that belief and, and, and it worked for me. It always has. Truly, even if it didn't, I'd be wasting the time until that point just worrying. You know, this is our shot. This is our life. We can spend it ruminating. We can spend it worrying about things that which we have no control and it's the most compelling and a natural thing to do, but it ruins our life. It takes away the enjoyment and the satisfaction, and it does take away a lot of happy and good moments. So reframing things, even in the bleakest moments, as okay, so this can be a great escape for our hero. Or I used to use this a lot when I was a consultant, when, when people used to say, yeah, but what we're told to do, it's so difficult. And my answer was, and that's why our screening is so good, because we managed to choose people... <laughs> <laughs> you can actually persevere. Yes, it's difficult. The more difficult it is, the happier you will be when you succeed. And if people reject you, the, mo the immediately to my mind goes, wow, they have such bad judgment. <laughs> wow, they have to go through life with that bad judgment. <laughs> I just like, you know, I can carry on, but they're, they're stuck with a bad judgment. And that's 
truly, I'll, I'll look myself in the mirror. But once I finish doing that, then I'm reframing my happiness, please. And and I think it's a wonderful tool. And people people should know how how to use it. Look at things differently. My guy, my brother, you should. I mean, he's the he's a master of that. Yeah, and it's funny when you mentioned r- ruminate and rumination. I was thinking about one of his um, TED talks, which is a- yeah. amazing. But yeah, that that that's another episode, I think. Yeah. But, but I just like like that whole idea of you know um, if you if you look at the world and see it as opportunities rather than threats, um, it really sort of flips things around. Because I mean, say with this podcast, I had no talent in the creative industries whatsoever. So I'm an accountant. When I was at university, my favorite subject was auditing and accountability. I thought I had no creativity whatsoever. But then I, I recorded a podcast and it went quite well. And then I managed to get one good guest and then there's a domino effect because then other guests will see well i've got somebody who's you know social proof that you know there was a chap called dr christian bush i don't know if you've come across him he's written a book called the serendipity mindset it's about how you can create luck and you know once you get one from, from nyu the guy from, yes it, exactly yeah and and it's funny it's funny huh? girl. i mean yeah. I, I literally during lockdown i was watching youtube like the whole world and I saw one of his videos and I thought, oh, Christian, he seems like a good guy. And then I looked him up on LinkedIn and he and I saw he was connected to somebody I knew quite well. And then I sent him a, a message and he kindly replied. And the, and the funny thing is that I later found out that that person he was connected to, he didn't really know very well at all. But oh. he was such a nice guy. And then you know, he appeared on the podcast and then I got some other good guests. And, and now here we are with, you know, Dr. Gil Winch. <laughs> Lots of people who write, they write in the evening. They work during the day. You can always move from where you're at. Just a question of how much you really want it and how hard you're willing to work to get there. But I really, I, I'm such a firm believer in if you're not happy, move. And even if you move to the wrong place, now you know that's not your place. Getting to your book, Winning with Underdogs, you know, I just love reading it. And I'm very much like you. I, I love the underdog to do well. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the book and the key messages from it? This is the basic premise, I think. We have evolved to provide within a tribe, even as primates and as hominids, we provide within a tribe. That's how we've evolved. We're very, very social animals. And that's how we were for the first tens of thousands of years of our existence. It's pretty much only since the Industrial Revolution where most of us leave our homes and we go and work for someone else, where we're not cared for, we're not known, we're not necessarily even wanted. At best, we're an asset. That's not who we are. Because when you provide within a tribe, you always have a job because everybody needs to contribute. You always have a place and there'll always be some people there who love you. You can have fights and arguments and everything, but you're basically within your larger family. And that's who we are as people. And 70, I think the statistic is 70% of the people working are emotionally unhappy because we work in cold corporate cultures when there's no caring whatsoever and you're just treated as an asset in most cases. And not only are you unhappy, you perform way substandard, your own standard. And that's changed because not only is it cruel to people who's, who are working, lots of people can't join the workforce because of that kind of culture. So everybody's losing from it. People are not making enough money as as they could because their workforce isn't engaged enough, isn't happy enough. Lots of attrition. People aren't giving everything they have because they're harassed or upset or have no work-life balance or have work-related anxiety, stress, or whatever you want. But it's keeping a lot of people who have been out of the workforce for a long time, like disabled people, unable to join because even if they do, they can't, they don't have enough confidence to survive that kind of culture. And in order for that, in order for everyone to actually be able to join uh, join the workforce, the culture needs to change. So the book is built around three basic parts. The first part talks about the real state of diversity in the world, which is way below what people think it is. It's There's an awful lot of lip service going on. There's an awful lot of hypocrisy going on. You have very large populations who are not uh, employed at all and or are not even reported about as if, as if they don't exist. So that's the real state of diversity. The first part of the book is why it's so worthwhile for companies, basically, financially to change. They'll just earn so much more money. And I bring as much research to prove that as I can. 
The second part of the book is our playbook, which is the main motivation to write it. I wanted people to know how to successfully employ people with disabilities and other underdogs because you have to do everything different in order for it to work. That's why they're so unemployed all over the world. Unless you change how you screen, how you onboard, how you manage people, how you fire people, you won't manage to, to successfully hire all these people that we actually do want to bring on board. Any economy where everybody's working is a stronger economy. So I wanted our playbook of how to do it out there with enough interesting stories and, and other empirical stuff to keep, keep people interested in it. And the last part of the book is, all right, so if this is a change everybody actually would like, this is how we can actually achieve it. And I give three examples of things we can try and champion. And I'll just give one of them. Food labels came out in 1990, mandatory. All the food companies had values prior to that saying, our uh, uh, customers, are the, their health, that's the most important thing to us. But they didn't tell us what we're eating because it costs money. See, maximum profit thing. Yeah. And even though they all had those values, we didn't know what we're eating. But the first 30 years, we know what we're eating. And it's, it's really beneficial to everybody's health. Now, imagine every large company on their homepage had to have a label, an easy-to-find label with the true diversity, equality, in, and inclusion information in it. For instance, the, the gender wage parity, 34%. In America, it's just under 20%, meaning that an American woman earning an average salary will earn more than half a million dollars less than a male counterpart doing the same work. It's horrific, right? If we had on the homepage of every brand, when was the last time you did a, 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 a gender parity wage audit? Everybody could decide if we want to buy from them or not. If we could actually see, do you hire ex-cons? The biggest problem is in America. Do you hire ex-cons or not? Then 24 million American adults plus their family and loved ones could decide if they want to buy shoes from this company that does or from that company that doesn't. It would be such a huge game changer would force everybody to do the right thing. And that's one of the things everybody can ask for, talk about diversity labels and get one politician to actually make it a law. And, and then the world will actually change because consumers do have so much power. So yeah, no, th that's no, what the book is built. Yeah, from. no, I, I love all those points you're making. And, and what I really like about CY is the way you sort of reinvented or reimagined the interview process. Actually just make it, easy uh, in the sense of show me what you can do. Anybody listening, would you marry your spouse if the first time you saw them, they were in the ugliest state possible? And the answer is maybe not. <laughs> Even if you're really happily married, when you hire employees, you want them with you for the long term. So why are you choosing who you want to live with for the long term by providing them the least the, the least best opportunity to show you who they really are. And anxiety is horrific for people, especially people without confidence. But 92% of adults say that they have interview anxiety when they go. So we're judging people when they're really, really anxious for so many jobs that anxiety, managing stress has got nothing to do with the actual job. It's just like, People do traditionally that stuff and they, they don't even know what you're coming in for. There's a fog of war. They're not the enemy. They're supposed to be your partners or your employees or your, why are they the enemy? Or well, we want to choose people by seeing them at their best. And we also want to know how far they can come. Part of our screening is eliminate anxiety as totally as you can. I'll just give two short examples. Uh, people can read in our website what they're coming in, what, how, how it looks, what they're coming in for. They can bring a friend, a spouse, a dog, a parrot. We've had all these. The, the friend and the spouse aren't allowed to help them during the interview, but the dogs and the parrots can if they, you know, they feel they have it in them. People can ask to do it again. And we start the interview with a love and passions questionnaire. They're treated by the interviewer as guests. The interviewer sees himself as a host. And they start by chatting in the cafeteria after I make you coffee about, okay, what are your loves and passions? Like we started talking yeah. about the arts because people are most verbal and they're most themselves when they talk about things they love and have yeah. a passion for. Course, yeah. And that's where you get the first glimpse of people at their best. And anything asked, the interview will answer. Why are we doing this? I'll explain if it wasn't clear. 
And even if you do need a position where stress management is part of that position, we'll say, okay, because there is stress in the job you're going to be doing, we need to see how you function. And you need to see how you feel functioning that way. So we're going to have a stressful hour. I apologize. It'll be over in an hour. And then you go about it and you treat people like in dating. This is a mutual decision, right? And you mutually want to decide if you want to continue together. At the end of the screening, they get to grade us. And the grade they give us is how well we did enabling them to bring out the best of themselves. And if we didn't do well enough, we want to know why and what to do different. So we keep on tweaking our processes in order to see people at their best. And that's why the longevity of employees and staff and managers is so much longer than anywhere else. And and people come for the long term and they stay the long term and their well-being, their happiness is an extreme concern of ours because I believe that if your employees are happy, they have good work-life balance and their well-being is good, then they will make our customers happy and take care of their well-being. And that's what will take care of business. I don't have to take care of the end product. I just have to take care of the people delivering it. That's what our business is about, and it creates a culture of caring and warmth and and like a communal sort of thing. Even though there are hundreds of employees, it's a wonderful thing. I just love that. Even for traditional companies and the traditional interview, I think if you can make the interviewee feel comfortable and actually maybe even giving the questions beforehand so that they can prepare, um, that I don't think that's such a silly thing. But in terms of the traditional interview process, so a lot of our listeners are either looking for new jobs or maybe, you know, trying to deal with interviews. Are there any thoughts that you might have? I need to make this point. If our listeners are going for a job interview and they're treated coldly and indifferently, then they should think about if they want to work there or not. Because it'll be it it'll often be indicative of a culture working there. And I would I would I would actually look for a place that treats you differently if some people have really thick skin or they really couldn't care. So, you know, do whatever. But if you do care, go somewhere that will appreciate you. And if you're in a, in a in a marriage with a spouse who is you know abusive, look yeah. elsewhere. Yeah, you don't have yeah. to you know you don't have to put up with it. Yeah. And you have value, and and yeah. people don't always know what their value is. And I'll just give you an example. There, there's someone I, I I have a huge regard for, and their strongest trait is they're absolutely reliable. If they say I'm on it, they're on it. You never have to ask them what's happening. They will tell you. They'll tell you if there's a problem. They are. Hugely reliable. That's such an important thing. So few people, you can actually just ask them to do something and totally forget about it and it'll get done. Or they'll tell you there's a problem, but but that's such an important trait. Value it. And, and everybody has good and important things they can do. Find a job that values those things. Find a people who value those things and work in an environment with people you'd like to be around. You spend most of our working hours at work. Let's try and be happy there. And if you can't afford it, look look while you're working. But but you know, yeah, no, you don't have to I just love that happiness. point. And and I think yeah, don't be satisfied with something that you're not happy with. Um, and clearly, look, we all need money. We've got to pay the bills. But clearly, you don't have to just resign. You can do it do it on the side, as you're saying. Right. But always be looking for some better opportunity, or maybe you need to upskill yourself, or whatever it is. But rather than feeling, or, or just maybe sometimes not a better opportunity, just a nicer place. Yeah, no, no, just totally. a nicer place, without a doubt. And another interesting thing I got from your book is the whole idea of confidence, because that's obviously such an important part of the interview process mm-hmm. and also working life. And I, I was. You wonder, is there a way of developing confidence? Are there things that we can do to create it? Clinically, I'm I'm not the I'm not the go-to guy. However, mm-hmm. I I do think that confidence gets like mixed up. People think that someone who's confident is confident. That's not true. You find a really confident person and you ask them to do a, you know, a belly dance, and they'll <laughs> all the confidence evaporates. We're not always confident. We're confident in some things, yeah. and in some things we're less confident. Start out by establishing with yourself, where are you confident? You Are, are you a good friend to people? Can you be a good, loyal friend? Build confidence around that. Everybody has quite a few good traits. Use them 
for the confidence. And the other things you'll acquire, but you don't have to presume to be someone you're not. I, we have people coming in and saying, you know, I'm not the quickest, but I don't quit. So the quickest will overtake me. And a year later, I'll be overtaking them because they've like stopped developing and I'll keep on developing, but I'll do it slowly. But my motivation is bigger than others. It's good enough for me. I think you should try and define, and some people can't. I don't know. I'm not worth anything, right? Ask a friend. Because a friend, you know, usually people who aren't worth anything don't have any friends because I don't know anybody who's not worth anything. Ask a friend, ask someone who loves you what your strong traits are. And they don't have to be specifically professional. They can be as a person, and that's what you're bringing. I, I love learning. I'm curious. I'm, I'm really loyal. I'm a hard worker. Everybody has things they can build their confidence around. No, I'm not that good with numbers, but, 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 but I'm a hard worker, so I can fi- I'll eventually figure it out. It's confidence. It's even authenticity. And, and I believe in being confident where you are, trying to develop it where you're not, but not, not pretending. And usually what you're good enough at is good enough. Just be able to state it correctly. Yeah, and I love that point that you know, think about the areas which you're, you're good at and then maybe also use those as inspiration to build outwards to other areas. Um, and, and also I think the more you do something, the better you're you're going to get. I mean, I'm just taking the podcast, for example. You know, the first time I did it, I just did some test episodes. They weren't that great, but, you know, I thought, okay, there's something there keep recording, keep recording. And then by the end of it, uh, hopefully now sort of two years later, it, it's it's improved. But I always think, how can I improve it further? If you have that mindset that you haven't arrived, but you can get better, then I think that's a good mindset to have. And, 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 and that's confidence. What I'm doing now is good enough for now, yeah. but I want to improve for later. That, that's confidence. I know that I'm not the best out there, but I know that I'm improving and I'm closing the gap between the best out there and where I am now. Even if I'm a week into it or a year into it or two years into it, a lot of people look at the empty part of the glass and not, you know, and, and, and not, and not where it's where it's half empty and not where it's half full. And even if it's a quarter full, that's a lot of water right there. <laughs> so focus on the quarter. And there's no point in dealing with what you don't have. What you have is enough. You just be able to appreciate what you have and move away from what you don't have because people are, yeah, but he, they do that and they do that. And I don't, and I can always say, yeah, but they don't do that. And you do, and they don't have that. And you do, and you're humble and they're not. So they won't be learning as much as you because humility is important for development. So, you know, there's so many, and usually we're not our best friends. We need the best friends to to pick us up, be your best friend. And, And I think that's an important thing. Yeah, no, no, I, I just love all those points you're making. And I think one one other point, crucial point I think you make in the book is that, you know, sometimes you have these unfortunate situations at work where people are being, you know, not treated very well, they're being bullied. Are, are there any thoughts for our listeners on what, what is the best way to deal with that? So I think there are um, two kinds of bullies at work. That's who they are as people. I always say, you know, remember the class in high school and there was one guy there who was really unsavory? He's a boss now. So you can imagine, and you're not going to be changing them. And that's one kind of dealing with that goes goes differently than what I'm going to be talking about. And the other is people who just take advantage of a situation and every now and then will put someone down a bit. And usually they, they will do it with public around Bullies usually aren't that brave when it's just you and them. They're braver when there are other people around. I think two things. If the job is really, really important to you and you can't afford to lose it, then shut up and look for a different one when you finish work on after hours. But if you can, and there's a limit to what you're willing to take, then I would try and approach the bully um, with a positive message. And the positive message being, I like working here. I even like working for you. But when you embarrass me in front of everyone, it just takes away from my motivation, which I just can't magically. And it's just hurting what we want. We're on the same team. It's just going to hurt our achievements together. And even if you think I deserve it or not, if you embarrass me or or, uh, talk down to me in front of other people, basically, 
it's hurting what I can accomplish and the team can accomplish. It just makes other people timid and less engaged. And I don't, I don't think that's a, that's a good thing to do. And I would appreciate it if you try to treat me differently. And if you think I needed to be chided, um, then try and say it in a way that will make me want to fix what I got wrong and not want to leave or do the opposite. Now, I, I think that that's very helpful advice because, yeah, sometimes you just can't afford to leave um, and you have to suck it up. But I also think that if that if it's a situation which it's continuing, we all have options. And I think sometimes you have to say to yourself, look, maybe yeah, I can deal with it for six months a year, whatever it is you think, but then reverse engineer and think, what is it I have to do to be able to find a new job within that? period of time and I think that almost gives you hope and a sense of purpose rather than feeling this is the rest of my life it's going to be horrible um so yeah you've just got to get out of that negativity isn't it Gil speaking up as unpopular as it is if you know you did the right thing then that's a huge source of comfort and strength I feel I've been in enough boardrooms when I was a consultant. And I got to tell you, I think there's much more bullying going on in boardrooms, in the C-suite, than in the rank and file, where people still have some kind of respect usually. But the higher up you get in some companies, in fact, quite a few, it's horrific, the the stuff people, and and usually they're paid so much that they just, yeah, whatever you say, because you're paying me. And, And still the bully is doing the wrong thing and he's costing his company money. Because he's he's losing engagement, he's losing goodwill, he's losing creativity, and he's he's limiting all the IQ in the room to only his, which will never be enough. So yeah, it, it's stupid on the part of the bully, but you have to be realistic when it comes to if you can afford to stand up for it or not. And when you do, do it on the high road, yeah. politely, clearly, and not paybacky. Totally agree. And I also like this other other point you make about if you can create a caring environment in your company, that really does make a difference. Because I love this adv- uh, point you make about how there are these people who weren't very good at their jobs, but they went away in the evenings and they practiced to get better. I mean, yeah. how many people do that? Um, in call centers, right? Yeah, exactly. Amazing. Nobody. Yeah. Because... I'll put it that way. I think most, a vast majority of people are good people. And if you treat them kindly, you know, sometimes when someone new comes on board, they have to prove themselves. When someone joins, we want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then they can only disprove themselves. They don't have to prove themselves. They're getting that benefit of the doubt from the beginning. So there'll always be a certain small percentage, 1%, 3%, 5%, probably not more, will take advantage. And then what everybody does is they manage the 100% like because of the 5%. And no, I'm going to be managing everybody with caring and kindness. And I'll let a few take advantage. But 95% will reciprocate with everything they have to give and will you know pick up the paper from the floor and straighten the picture on the wall. We open at 8. It's full at 7. It's full at seven in the morning. People want to come in early just to socialize and be together and hang out. And that's what you get. The most engaged people, when you're kind to them, people do reciprocate. And I think it's such a powerful managerial tool, just being kind, being involved in people's lives, caring about them. If you're a manager and someone comes in and you say, so how was your kid's math exam yesterday? Then you're doing managing by caring. And and, and it's the most powerful managerial tool I know of. And there's not one research study about it because caring is not is not part of the management lexicon even. I, I just love that I point. That. And I, I do think if you can have an environment where people are happy and engaged, it really, it, it motivates them and yourself to do better and not for the sake of winning, but just you want to give your best. Um, it's like, you know, when you're young, you want to please your parents. Maybe yeah, you're it's older, exactly the same thing. You want it's to please exactly your the same thing. And yeah. you get that people, grown-ups coming said, you know what I did today? I did this, and I, like grown-ups. And yeah, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to have. And that's what you get when you actually care for them. You don't have to love them, but you have to care about them because they're important. 
So we're coming up to the end of our time, Gil, and it's been such a inspiring and fascinating conversation with you. So how can our uh, listeners um, reach out to you if they want to connect? I know you're on LinkedIn. Are, are you on anything else? Twitter? Um... No, I'm, I'm way too old. I'm on LinkedIn and I and I actually reciprocate. I, I meet people, reach out. Um, I, I, I answer, I connect. I spend about an hour on LinkedIn a day and, and some people send a connection request and I'm on it. I'll just, so if anybody wants to reach out, ask me something. If you want to put me in touch with people who you think I should meet or need to hear what I have to say, or I should be hearing what they have to say, put me in touch. I'm 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 very easy that way. Oh, brilliant. Um, and, and obviously you've got your your website. You know, obviously the book yeah. is out there. There's the TED talk as well. I'll make sure that all these links are in the, yeah. in the show notes and stuff like that. Um, and and one final thing: is there anybody um you'd like to give a shout out to who's helped you in your life or your career? You know, apart from obviously your lovely wife, who you mentioned and thanked, and you know, anybody else, Gil? Well, I mean, there's such a long list. There's such a long list because when you do kindness, people appear out of out of the I don't know even where they appear from to show you kindness and help you along your way. And it always it always grabs me and leaves me dumbfounded. And and it's happened again and again and again and again and again. And and they're, they're just they're just so so many. Everybody who's ever worked for me and and all my staff and our wonderful wonderful employees and. There's so many people around us who've been who've been so helpful and and encouraging and I I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean the acknowledgments in the book I had to hold myself in and I I think I did a page and a half over there. So there are many 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 many. That's fine. I mean that in a way that's a good thing that you have so many you can't really list them. Well, I'd also like to say thank your brother um, Guy for because yeah. he was the one who told me about your book and and stuff like that. I hadn't come across it. It just out a few months ago, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah, a new but, book, yeah. But it's such um, an inspiring story, and and the fact that you, you know you were ill, you decided to take this gamble, yeah. and and really, yeah, I, I'm thinking every as I was reading it, like how how do you carry on, have the perseverance, and then putting your life savings into it, and your poor wife, you know. <laughs> I just can't. I just can't imagine being in her position. I just love the story. You should make it into a film because I don't think people will actually believe. I, that, it's going to um, be. It. I. It should be. Seriously, it should be. It should be. Some no, of the stories. Yeah, we crazy. have some stories. I went light on the book. I didn't. I didn't. I, I, there's some really tough. There's yeah. a lot of employee stories there, but yeah. some of them like more. I I kept out because like it's a business yeah. book and people yes. haven't necessarily prepared tissue. So I yes. wanted to go easy, mm. sort of with some of the stories. But I do want to say one one final thing, if I may. Yeah, please do. Yeah. If if you're listening to this podcast and you're out of work, I I, I would really like to leave you with a very important thought or idea. It's not you, it's us. You're not out of work because you lack ability and you're not out of work because you lack worth. You're out of work because we live in a biased society where 50% of people who interview say that they can disqualify someone just by how he walks in the room or the amount of eye contact they make. And in that kind of a world, there's so many good people out of a job and feeling horrible about themselves. And really, it's not you. It's us trying to fix it, but it is us. And and take heart. No, I, I love that thought. And I think you know, one of the reasons why I do this podcast is very much about, I think sometimes with careers, people say, look, uh, you know, there's sand and things like networking, you know, get on LinkedIn, how to prepare a CV, how to interview, which obviously they're all very important. But I think what's fu- fundamentally more important is having the right mindset and thinking about the, the strategy and, and also thinking about yourself. Um, do I want to work in these environments? Do I want to work with these people? And I think in life, we all have choices uh, that we can make. And, you know, okay, look, I, I can't suddenly say I want to be um, an investment banker without having any skills, or I can't be a, a lawyer, a, a partner in a law firm. But what I can do is have, you can have a dream, you can have a goal, and then think about making these small steps. Exactly. And and also, I think in life, there are a lot of people, as you're saying, who are quite willing to do you down and be nasty and, and whatever. And you just have to say, look, forget that. And look at the people who are friendly, who will help you, because they're all, all always there and they will um as much as they can they will try and help 
to try and reframe the situation in in that sense. But yeah, I just love your thoughts um, about that, that it's not me, it's them. Yeah, because I, I have yet to meet someone who wants to work, that I couldn't think of a job, even if I didn't have it myself, that they could do well with their personality, skills, and capabilities. So if you're out of a job, then then you just haven't managed to meet the right match. Thank you so much again for you know taking the time to speak with us today. You know, love love your story. I love the book. It's so inspiring. And I do wish you continued success getting your message out there. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers. And subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.